0: Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultivar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now onto the show. Bill is the chief financial officer of NerveGen, a publicly traded regenerative medicine company dedicated to creating innovative solutions for the treatment of nerve damage. So Bill, let me ask you this, what led you to this point in life? Right now you're the CFO. Of, a, of an innovative biotech company called NerveGen. When you were younger, is this something you aspire to being a CFO?
1: Well, I guess backing it up even before being a CFO, I was uh, articled to be a CPA at, at uh, KPMG. And I always thought that uh, I was going to stay in public practice. I enjoyed the variety. I enjoyed the interaction with a lot of, um, you know, highly trained and smart people. The, the variety that you get from working with a number of different clients. I always thought that was great. And years ago, I thought, well, I'll, I'll leave, public practice for a year uh, go and get some ministry experience um, and then come back uh, because uh, I felt that my career wasn't moving fast enough at KPMG so like all good type A's I figured I could go and do a little better if I moved uh, to a different company but I left and once you get into a company and start working you realize that it's really exciting to be part of the management team and really living by the consequences of your decisions rather than just advising other people on that and so my one year uh, you know, has evolved into almost thirty years of working in industry and and um, and staying there. So, you know, as CFO of uh, technology companies, I, th- I think the real appeal of the uh, technology companies and life sciences company is just what I said was you know for the appeal of being in public practice is the variety and the pace. I mean, it. it things change very rapidly you know whether it's on the, the scientific front whether it's on the regulatory front uh, the capital markets it's a um, interesting place to be you know I think I would go crazy if I was sitting in a you know big bureaucratic government organization where you're doing the same thing every single day it's exciting to get up in the morning and open your email and not know what you're gonna hit and and, and be able to uh, react and pivot as you go through the day so it's really, uh, you know, a love of that type of fast pace and and, and ever change that has really uh, drawn me to uh, biotech and then uh, NerveGen uh, in particular was the opportunity to work with some people that I've worked with in the past uh, on a super interesting technology that's got a number of different ways that it can be successful and having, you know, those multiple shots on goal and, and ability to help steer that process, you know, both strategic and operational was was very appealing for me in uh, joining Nervgen.
0: And so let's dive a little bit deeper into your KPMG experience because I worked at EY and I had experience in public accounting as well. And I thought it was great experience. And, you know, the big question, if you're in public accounting is how long should I stay or should I stay? And, you know, what would be your advice to somebody who's listening right now? Maybe they're in public accounting, they're trying to decide whether they should get out of public accounting and go into private or public practice, you know, as a controller or a VP or some other financial leader, what would you say to them?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. I guess, you know, from my perspective, like I said, there was a lot of the whole process of Public accounting that I enjoyed. I enjoyed training staff. I was heavily involved in recruiting and bringing in new students and getting them interested in the learning process. The education process, I think, in, in a company like you know KPMG or EY, any of the big companies, is is second to none in terms of getting that broad industry experience. But you can really decide for yourself whether you want to be the one who's who's advising companies and advising uh, other people and having really diverse experience and, and being able to spread that around, or you know, focusing on, you know, specific companies at any given time and, and being a member of that management team. And I guess it's really where what people's comfort level is. And certainly, you know, the real advantage in, in working for a large accounting firm is the diversity of experience you can get. So you can move around, you can do something one day, then, you know, you can get an international transfer, you can work on audits in a number of different uh, industries. And that uh, you know, can be extremely compelling to some people. And, and uh, for others, you know, more take the path that I took where you join specific companies, you know, and really dig into those companies and, and become you know, embedded and part of a key member of the management team and driving forward that particular technology. So the variety is yes. within the company rather than across a lot of different companies.
0: Yeah, that's a great perspective. When you were going through school, how would you describe yourself? Were you this uh, like nerdy math kid who really loved numbers? And as you got into accounting, were you like, yes, this debits and credit stuff is so interesting, and it, it's just your something you're really passionate about, or like what got you into the world of finance and accounting?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I you know I went to I went to college to play football, and then I I, I needed to obviously get a career as well, because I wasn't going to make it as a football player. And and what I enjoyed about, um, I guess, accounting, when I went into the business side of the school was, you know, I always thought I wanted to be a business consultant. I had an uncle who was a business consultant, and it always seemed like he had a cool job because he was, you know, working on a lot of different projects and a lot of different things. And so I felt that's what I wanted to get into. And as I looked at the different alternatives within, you know, the, the commerce uh, faculty. when I was at UBC, I looked at you know, accounting, you know, seemed to, again, fit in terms of having a relatively set career path, at least initially, when you move into uh, public practice, but also giving that broad experience. And, and uh, I felt that was interesting. The debit and credit side of things is interesting and extremely important, but that wasn't that wasn't the real draw. For me, it was more the variety of the
0: work and the ability to be able to advise companies and work with a lot of companies in a lot of different areas. Yeah, no, and that, that makes sense. So let me ask you this. You were the VP of finance and corporate strategy at, epic data international and and frequently we see these finance roles they they don't really correlate with strategy roles so how do you believe that finance and strategy work together or do they
1: oh i think they absolutely do and you know i think finance is a key pillar uh in you know obviously for a company and and driving helping to drive strategy forward and and to be able to do your job properly in terms of making sure that the company's property capitalized to making sure that you can properly articulate the strategy to your shareholders and the board and, you know, bankers, insurance companies, other key stakeholders in the company, it's imperative for finance people to be deeply involved in understanding the, uh, the corporate strategy. And I think, you know, it's rarely a straight path to success at any company. And, and from a finance perspective, you're able to look at all aspects of the business and 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 look for the different points that pivot. You know, if you're just in a sales and marketing position, for example, you may totally understand that area, but have not a deep understanding of what's going on in R&D or, you know, in, in the marketing area or in manufacturing and operations. And all those pieces fit together and and, and one key role of finance and I often talk to this people i 'm working with is you know all roads lead to finance ultimately, where you know we see all the invoices, all the contracts all the all the processes within the company, and we have that ability to look at the big picture and uh, both historically in terms of looking at our quarterly and annual financial statements, but also in preparing budgets and and doing you know forward forecasting and, and analysis and be able to take. All aspects of the business and be able to articulate it back to the team. So you have to be part of that strategic process to, to uh, help to drive it and be able to create the scenarios and the analysis that other people need to determine what is the best route forward. Because often, you know, there's a choice of many very favorable alternatives and you have to decide, you know, what is going to be your highest and best use and um, risk adjusted best, highest and best use to, to move forward on things. Certainly, within the company I'm in right now, we've got this technology that can be used in so many different ways, and we'd love to do them all. But you know, it's, it's not realistic. You have to pick your best ones, and then know you know when when you want to, you know, potentially partner or you know, put off to somebody else as well.
0: And and, and it takes that strategic mindset. And it, it seems like you developed that strategic mindset early on, even when you're in public accounting, and you know you are thinking about things differently. And, you know, sure, the accounting side was interesting to you, but it sounds like solving problems and coming up with these like solutions for organizations was much more appealing. So, you know, when we think about, you know, the CFO route, coming out of programs like accounting and, and finance programs. And, and that's what I went through. You know, Those programs don't have courses really on strategy. And sure, you get some of it in public accounting when you're working with a bunch of different companies and you see what's working for them and what's not working for them. But how would you recommend a financial leader listening to this podcast? What would you say to them if, if they want to step out of the compliance transactional role and that's so traditional to them? and into more of a strategic position so they have a place at the table with leadership.
1: For sure, you need to learn about your business. You know, the debits and credits and the financing side, making sure that the you know your your compliance is, is correct is 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 just a cornerstone. Is it's a it's the base, it's the foundation. You have to make sure that's okay. But try to make that a smaller amount of your time and really focus on learning the business. So, spend time talking to the scientists, spend time talking to the engineers or the manufacturing people, or whatever it is you know walk the shop floor. Um, spend time with the sales and marketing people, which is always fascinating. Try you know as best you can, even if you 're just sitting in on, on customer calls quietly, listening to the needs of the company 's customers or stakeholders, whatever those may be, you know whether it 's Investors, etc., and trying to understand um, their perspective because the more you understand about the business and the more you understand about the the needs of the people that you're trying to address within your work, the the better off you're going to be. And it's it's you know for me it wasn't like a planned approach. I remember when I was at at Epic, that was sort of my first foray out into industry. You know, I used to go to project meetings and things like that and and walk the shop floor because we were manufacturing company as well. And people would look and they were it was weird like what is you know what is the CFO doing here? You know, is he going to fire everybody? Is that what he's in here to do? You know, you going to do a, a reduction in force or something. And, you know, I started to you know build confidence with them that no, I'm actually there to learn and to try to help. And, you know, you don't have to sit there and try to be the smartest person in the room. You just have to be one of the best listeners in terms of trying to pick up and, and look at these things. And back to what I was saying earlier about putting all the different perspectives together, you can wear the hats of all the different people in the different departments and try to look, you know, to see how, how are these people interacting and how does, this build together to drive the success of the company going forward.
0: Yeah. And, and, and I, I think that's such great advice. I, I really like how you emphasize getting to know the customers is really, really key because you can't build a strategy and you can't build a company, you know, if you don't understand your customers truly and deeply. I also like how you talked about just getting out there and like learning the business and going beyond the financial statements to really understand, okay, what are the sources of value for the company and you know, where do we truly make money and what's the business all about and you know what, what activities are working, what activities are not working? And I think that's so critical for CFOs to put themselves out there. And I agree with you, as they do this, they become more valuable in the organization. They build more trust with employees and they can have a, a, a serious influence on the organization because they touch so many pieces of the business.
1: Well, frankly, I think it makes your job easier too, because um, you know, you're, you're understanding the you know the reason behind a transaction, or the reason behind when, you know, when you're seeing certain things coming, rather than just having to push the paper around. You understand why the paper even exists, and, and and how it's key to
0: the organization. Yeah, I absolutely agree. So, why biotech and healthcare? What what makes you passionate about these fields?
1: Well, you know the the opportunity to get into uh, healthcare for me uh, came you know after I was at Epic which was a technology company a hardware and software and integrations company biotech was just getting started in Vancouver uh, at that time this was back in the late 1990s it was really in its infancy stage and the company that I had a, an opportunity to join uh, was a private company looking to go public it was a technology that was brought out of the US and moved up to Canada and Australia you know, typically in Canada it was always had been that Canadian technology was going to the states so this was a, this was coming in the opposite direction which was very interesting and and What was happening at that time was, you know, I think the whole Vancouver area was sort of waking up to the value of knowledge-based businesses before that Vancouver really was focused on mining and forestry and and sort of more resource type industries. You know, we've got great universities, the capital was available in terms of venture capital funds were forming to support companies like that. So I had a chance to jump in really in its infancy and and start to grow an industry that didn't really exist a few years before. And for me, it was, was, um, you know, extremely rewarding to be part of that in terms of growing that business, but also just the actual technology that, that the company was uh, creating. We ultimately, you know, 10 years later, after we went public, uh, both in Canada and the US, we ultimately sold it for a very nice return for our shareholders. So that was terrific for the shareholder side. But it's not just about making money, uh, you know, for, either for yourself, or for your shareholders. It was also about, you know, creating something that was, you know, I guess, for a greater good. And it sounds a little bit corny that, you know, you're, you're doing something, you know, to help the world. But you know, I had the opportunity, I was at a, a wedding a few years ago, and my daughter was one of the bridesmaids. And one of the other bridesmaids, she was a sister of the bride, and see she's wearing a headscarf. And I knew she had some sort of cancer, and, and I didn't really know the whole the story of it. But was at the reception, we were talking. And i sorry, I'm just, I've got chills going down my spine telling you this now. But I was talking to her, and she was saying that she had a – turns out she had blood cancer that our drug that we developed uh, helped to uh, work in treatment of. And it turns out she had taken our drug – to have a successful stem cell transplant and she had a successful stem cell transplant. She was in remission. And I know now that she, she remains in remission. So when you have that chance to meet somebody who is actually, you know, especially at her age, I she was 28 years old to, to have, you know, had a, you know, positive health outcome from work that you've been involved in, even though I wasn't the scientist in the lab, it was extremely, extremely rewarding and makes you just want to get out of your chair and get back to work and get going on doing it the next time. It's, it's, it's one of those industries where you can really make a difference in someone's life, you know, literally, and whether they live or not. And, and uh, you know, having positive results like that is just incredible.
0: Um, and this is one of the few industries where you can do that. That's a really powerful story. And, you know, I, I agree. It, it's not just about making money, but it's it's following, you know, our passions and our purpose in life. Have you ever felt you know, that your purpose wasn't aligned with what you were doing in life and you needed to make a major pivot. And if so, uh, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Hey, real quick. I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level, or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called the surprising path to excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our boosting your financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies. So be sure to check it out now back to the show. I don't think so, because I guess for me, back to the sort of the, you know, the
1: the genesis of the conversation where, you know, I seek out change and variety and whatever that I never felt that I didn't fit in terms of, you know, finding, you know, sort of new things or or new ways to go. I do think that, you know, company building uh, is, you know, to a certain extent, a bit of a relay race at times. And you got to know when to hand the baton off to the next person and, and be willing to actually let go of the baton and let the next person take it and run with it rather than, Trying to kind of hang on and and so you know partly you look at sort of you look at my skill set or where it is and and as a, as you see companies growing to a certain uh, extent, in my case it's always been a more of an exit where another you know, company has come and bought it out. but you know you do see it in other opportunities where you take it to a certain level, you be you, you know proud of where you took it, uh, but no one has time to sort of hand it off to the next person and and let them run with it. it just, you know chances are they probably couldn't have got it to where you got it to either. So it's an ever evolving process. So I've never really had that strong pivot where I needed to make a, a big change because
0: I just felt it wasn't the right fit. Well, that's good. Cause yeah, some people, you know, they're going throughout their careers and, you know, one day they have like a midlife crisis or they, they realize that what they're doing is not aligned with, you know, their purpose in life and they make a radical change. So it's interesting to hear your perspective. Let me ask you this, what role does technology play in, in your organization and with you as a CFO? Well, it's definitely um increasing all the time particularly now in, in covid days when we're all
1: working uh, virtually to be able to share that information but i think importantly you know the the real benefit that you can bring from the finance role is you know sort of back to what i said not just creating the financial statements and making these big beautiful spreadsheets and and crunching away on the numbers but you know having tools to make those effective but you know certainly from my perspective good financial planning ability to be able to look at you know do scenarios how do, how do you run scenarios how do you set things up to be able to look at different alternatives and so you can you know sit with your team uh you know whether it's the manufacturing team the sales team all of them together and say okay you know given these different scenarios this is what the outcome is going to be you know do we like this if we change this this assumption or that assumption how does it drive uh different scenarios and different uh, different capital requirements and, and company structuring requirements and and so Having technology that helps you be able to really analyze the numbers rather than just create the numbers, I think is, is super key. So always looking for ways to get rid of the, the routine, you know, make sure the routine is right, but get rid of it and, and get to the point where you can actually sit and analyze the numbers and and, and run scenarios with them.
0: And, and what, are your, what are your thoughts on data analytics? Uh, do, do you think it's something that truly adds value to organizations and creates a competitive advantage? Is it too early to say? Or what type of influence or impact has it had on your organization?
1: Well, well, for us, you know, we're a research and development company, so we don't have customers. And at this point, we're, we're strictly in development stage. But, you know, I think data anal- analytics, uh, you know, needs to be used properly. You know, it's the right question being asked on the data that's being uh, collected. And I think, I think it does have a role. I think it, it's, you know, it's back to how can you collect large amounts of information without having to go up and, you know, talk to thousands of people. Or look at thousands or millions of transactions. So I I definitely see a role, not so much in our particular um, industry right now, uh, or my particular company right now, anyways, as we're just growing all of the data analysis we do, which is extensive is is related to scientific
0: data. Gotcha. That makes sense. Well, let's talk about going public. So going public with a company is a, a very strenuous process. Can you tell us about your experience with taking companies public? And do you have any advice for CFOs out there that are going through this process themselves, or they're thinking about it?
1: Yeah, I think two main things um, to think about as going through the process is one is I think it's important for an organization in in you know once that sort of decision uh, to to go public is made is to do what I call practice being public. I remember first time to company public and people would ask me so you say so so what's different now you're a public company and and. You know, happily, I was able to say, well, no, not a whole lot, because you know, we worked ahead of time for months, and you know, even quarters, getting into the cadence that you need to be in uh, as a public company. So that you know, in terms of reporting to the we we, you know, we didn't you know write MDNAs, but we thought about this sort of. Disclosure, you have to have the type of systems you have to build in the place, which is which is the second aspect of it. So, first of all, practice all the different processes you need to have, but also get the internal processes aligned and set up not just within finance, but within the whole organization. Because really, when you are a public company, you need the support of of the whole company in terms of you know, when you're setting uh, you know public milestones and having to report against them, making sure that you've got proper internal controls in place, proper um, systems in place to do the reporting on time, et cetera, et cetera. The trick with that is to put all that in place without stifling the innovation that's, that's created all the value in the company in the first place. I mean, there's nothing that scientists hate more is having somebody from accounting coming down and saying, well, you got to, you know, tick this box, you got to put your initial in this bottom right-hand corner, and you got to do this process It requires, you know, three different layers of decision-making before you can actually do something. You know, you may need that, but but... As you're developing these processes, you need to think through how are they being uh, received by the other people in the company. And what you don't want to do is, you know, scare people away with the sort of bureaucracy that you're creating to to make yourself in an appropriate position to be a public company. So there's a delicate balance there. And that's why starting early and talking again to your stakeholders internally, in this case, to make sure that they are aligned with, uh, with what's required going forward, and then to make sure that those requirements, you know, are going to be acceptable to your banks, to your investors, to the securities regulators to the insurance companies, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you can't just sort of flip a switch and say, okay, you know, today I'm a private company. i don't need to worry about this stuff tomorrow in public. All of a sudden I do. It's something that's got to be developed over a long period of time.
0: Yeah, and, and getting in that cadence, like you said, is is yeah. really good advice and, and really practicing it and setting up the right governance is, is key for sure. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's talk about M&A. Uh, you have strong experience with M&A as well. Do you have any advice for business owners considering M&A activities? And where do you believe they should start
1: I guess it comes back to strategy initially you know once you you know as part of your strategic assessment in terms of where the company uh, needs to get to one of those you know our branches is inevitably going to come to a buy versus build analysis whereas you know is it is it worth it for you to organically grow to the size that you need to do to achieve this potential outcome or are you better off to try to find something you can you know glue into to, to get you there faster or to, to cover off an area where you're uh, particularly weak and, and I think that's a interesting assessment to do Um, you know sometimes we say well I don't want to go buy somebody because I can't stand the dilution or raise the money but on the other hand if you can bring in some key technology or some key skill sets it's going to move you ahead by two or three years in your strategic plan from where you would be if you threw it yourself well you know is that worth it? Because now you're going to be quicker to market. You're going to be quicker to developing that. So I think that you know it's a key part of your strategic analysis. And once you've decided that you know it may be faster to 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 acquire somebody to to put it in place, or alternatively sell yourself or sell a part of your business, then you want to start to look at not just your needs now at this point, but what are the needs of the potential targets, whether it's sure. who you're selling to or who you're buying from, and and looking for people that where it makes sense where you're going to have a mutual you know, win-win, a synergistic win, because so many M&As, if you look at the statistics, you know, they end up, you know, two years down the road, they've essentially failed. And I think it's partly because you haven't really been able to align those, uh, you know, the, the goals and the needs of, of both parties on those things. But it could also be that, you know, the right strategy is buy something, you know, take that resources, use it hard for a couple of years. And then if, even though you shut it down, it still moved you two years ahead of where you were going to be if you did it organically and, and might still be the right decision. So, you know, all of this sort of ties back again to your long-term strategy of where you want to be.
0: And, and when it comes to strategy, where do companies get it wrong from your experience? I mean, is it, is it the wrong approach? Is it you know, not big enough thinking? Is it too big of thinking? Is it a lack of execution? Is it a combination of everything? It, is there anything that you can kind of put your finger on and say, this is a major factor of why strategy fails in some organizations or comes short of achieving the results that the organization wants to achieve?
1: I guess from my experience, and this, this probably comes from being on some some boards as well, is it if, if the strategy is dictated down to the um, to the different business units versus having them being involved and feeling a part of it. I think, I think you have a lower chance of success. You really want people to buy into the strategy and, and are doing it not because, you know, the CEO said so, or the CFO said so, or the board said so, or whatever. They're doing it because they really believe this is the, the vision of the company. And and the second thing about where I think strategy fails, it was the saying We had one of our other companies and I, I believe it to be true and you see it all the time is that, you know, culture, Trump strategy, in, in, in terms of internal culture within the company, and building that collaborative, you know, forward-looking working environment amongst all the different departments in the company is so much more important than having this great strategy. You could, you know, hire a bunch of Harvard MBAs and come up with this pristine business strategy that's it would look, you know super great in in sort of any corporate pitch presentation, but if you don't have the hearts and minds of the people who are trying to pull it together, and not just the people in the company, but the people who are supporting the company and and advisors around the company, uh, you know, including your shareholders, you know, it's never going to get there. And and so uh, building that good sort of management structure, good internal working environment, I think is just
0: as important uh, as a really good strategy. So how do you get people excited about strategy? Because oftentimes, you know, as you go down the ranks to, you know, from the the senior team down to management, down to the front line worker, these individuals, they're, they're busy. They got a lot on their plate. And, you know, oftentimes they think, huh, here's another strategy. Here's another flavor of the month or, you know, what is it now? You know, what's going to cause more work for me now when it comes to strategy? How do you get them excited, engaged, and and see the value of strategy when they're not necessarily in a strategic role?
1: You know, what we do, and what I've tried to do at many different companies is be
0: more open than
1: you might feel comfortable. And it's really saying that as a finance guy is tough because we're inherently it's in our dna to be conservative and worry about what we say but when i say that, is paint a picture for people and, and and we use you know and we're lucky in life sciences to be able to have this tool but we use stock options extensively as well in terms of having people understand that they, they'll be part of a, a bigger picture you know they're not it's not just their salary and their you know and their bonus or whatever it is going forward but it's also you know there's a chance in building the company that they'll have you know higher value going forward. And there's certainly been, at least in life sciences, there's been huge number of examples you can point to where people who, who you know have you know gone in the company and and, and really uh, had great success in the company and it trickles down through all members of the organization. So you know we bring bring people in both in terms of the communication and in terms of you know, having equity participation. It obviously works much better in a company this you know a smaller organization where you got you know less than 200 people versus multi-thousands of people spread out over a lot of different international locations but still you know those basic concepts of, of letting people know you know what why you're doing things and giving them an opportunity to ask questions and giving them you know truly having access to the executive suite and a lot of people say it's you know we have open door policy you can come in anytime you want but you know you're sitting in your office with you know you're staring at your computer you get the door closed your body language you're not getting out there and so it's it's a lot more getting out of your seat as an executive and walking around and talking to people and, and addressing and answering their, their questions.
0: Yeah, that's great advice. So what do you think about when it comes to the C-suite, who should own the strategy? Does the CEO own the strategy, the CFO, the COO? Is it a combination of the group? Who in your mind owns strategy, not just now, but as we move into the future? I mean, ultimately, I think everybody in this
1: C-suite needs to own the strategy and then bring it down to their uh, respective a business units and make them feel involved i mean ultimately it all comes back to the ceo as being the the, the champion of the strategy but you know if, if the ceo i mean a strategy that's developed by a ceo and pushed down to everybody else is not going to succeed i don't think it's got to be you know the teams bringing their you know Talking with their teams, bringing that information forward to developing a strategy that that makes sense to all the different groups is where it's going to work. So I mean, I, I see that being key, uh, certainly within the company, but also to have the board involved, you know, as the representatives of the shareholder of the yeah, the shareholders and other stakeholders. That you want to make sure that they're aligned as well. So you know, we try to have joint planning sessions with both the management team and the board frequently, and it's up to management to execute and, and ultimately develop. But having that involvement and buy-in from the board, I think is, is ultimately key as well, because then the board can go back to their constituents and get their same buy-in as well.
0: So how do you see the relationship between the CEO and the CFO becoming stronger? And, and how can CEOs and CFOs collaborate better with each other? Because those are two critical roles, you know, when you have strategy and finance combined together, through your experience, how do you see that working well together, the CEO and the CFO?
1: Clearly, it's having um, you know very frequent conversation and being viewed as business partners rather than um, a direct reporting relationship. You know, it's, it's interesting in, in my role in life sciences because you know, well, pre-COVID, we would spend a lot of time on the road going and talking to investors or talking to collaborators, et cetera. Right? And you, you end up um, you know, as you travel together, it's not just in those meetings, but it's also you know, you go for walks at night and just talk about strategy and, and things like that as you're as you're on the road. I mean, I think any opportunity you can create where you can have a chance to sort of free flow ideas without having to be sitting down. So i like you could say, I'm going to say, I'm going to allocate half an hour a week or an hour a week to strategy and it's going to be, you know, three o'clock on a Friday afternoon and we're going to nail this thing. I think a lot of sort of good decisions and good, certainly new ideas come not when you sort of expect it. And so having those opportunities to have that time to communicate outside of sort of strict things, I think is, is really key. Uh, and then that's not just between the CEO and the CFO, but other members of the management team as well. So again, encouraging people to to you know get out of their offices and 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 go in and and uh, interact with people uh, in uh, different ways. It just creates more opportunities to to come up with good ideas.
0: What if a CFO is sitting here listening to this episode and they're thinking, "Hey, all this stuff is great, but my CEO doesn't treat me like that. They treat me like a, a number cruncher or the the person who produces financial reports. Any advice for them of how they can rise up and earn that like strategic position within the organization and, and be more of an advisor and collaborator with the CEO rather than just this numbers cruncher behind the scene?
1: Well, I guess one, one way that I
0: did that was being
1: involved at the board level and and helping the CEO and making the presentations at the board level. And the reason I say that is most times uh, in companies, you, you start with, the controller and the CFO typically would be at the audit committee meeting. So you're dealing with a subset of the board. You're supposed to just be looking at the numbers. But as you're preparing documentations for that, as you're preparing uh, you know, presentations and things, to the extent you can use your uh your skills to shed some light on other aspects of the business, I think you know, CEOs start to realize that oh, you are more than just a number cruncher. I can actually, you know, have you involved in these questions because you are showing an interest in these other areas of the business. You've got a you've got an insight and ability to take a bunch of information and and um, or a bunch of data and, and create information out of it that is interesting and useful for people. That, that you start to build that I guess trust with the CEO. I mean, it's it's actually a compliment that I've received where CEOs said to me he said you know you're not like most CFOs and and I said well yeah but that's good I think I think. Yeah. In terms of with most people's perspective is the CFO, is the numbers guy, is is the nomad. CF No is the is a common thing. You're the one that's gonna, you know, check things and agree or disagree and you're gonna be the the, the gatekeeper and, and you gotta demonstrate your ability to go beyond that and, and to be able to add value to the whole organization.
0: Yeah I think that's absolutely critical. And I, I really like how you keep driving on the point of you know getting out there, knowing the business, talking with people. and you know I, I thought that was key when I was CFO of getting out there visiting job sites, talking to people, you know walking around our different office floors. And I have to admit, I wasn't always the best at that. It's hard to get out of my office and get out of the meeting and, and actually walk around and have conversations. But when I did, and I got out there in the field, and I was able to see what was going on in the business is very powerful. And we opened up a, an office out in Australia and I, I took the trip out there with the chairman of our company and we went and visited the team out there and we visited a few job sites. And, you know, I, I think it, it said a lot to lots of the team that, you know, the CFO and the chairman were out there shaking hands with people and meeting teams and taking an interest in their work and exhibiting to them that, Hey, we do more than just crunch numbers and serve as a gatekeeper to the organization.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think people really appreciate it when you really take an interest in what they're doing and trying to understand uh, their part of the operation. And then, you know, the, the, the reciprocal of that is, so you're learning something, but the reciprocal of that is too, is I think you're getting buy you know, it's back to this culture thing. You're getting buy-in from the organization now that they're, they're saying, Hey, well, you know, these guys aren't just, you know, here to control me. You know, I, I can help them and they can help me and we can work together to do something better. So it, it provides benefits
0: uh, both ways. Yeah, I agree. It builds a lot of trust. So mm-hmm. let's talk about mentors. You like mentors? Don't like mentors? What are your thoughts and experience with mentors?
1: Oh, I think mentors are uh, are key. You know, both in terms of you know having someone who's you know been there, done that for you, but also uh, peer mentors. You know, we just today did a 2 our webinar with a group called Association of Bioscience Financial Officers (ABFO) for short, and we um, it was something I was involved with sort of getting you set up in the Vancouver area and it was already set up uh, in the U S and it's sort of throughout. And what it is, is it's just a group of peers that get together today was a thing. It was, there was Ernst Young was presenting on accounting pronouncements. There was someone from Cowan talking about capital markets building. There was lawyers talking about new sec regulations all sounds super boring to most people, but as a CFO and being on the call with a hundred other CFOs who are going through all these same issues, it was extremely helpful in terms of, you know, one, it was an update relative to our job. But secondly, I know we've got a pool of people that, you know, you can talk to who's done this before, because in most cases when you're going through your job, you know, can feel kind of lonely as a CFO, especially if it doesn't, you know, there's not a deep finance group within the company. Uh, but a lot of the issues that you're, that you run into are ones that other people have hit. And um, I guess the second part of that is, you know, having a good mentor can help you in terms of not only sort of dealing with the problems that you have, but, but help you, to identify areas where you might have problems and avoid them before you even have them i mean your greatest skill would be to be known as someone who doesn't have problems rather than someone that's just a good problem solver you know some some, you know being a good problem solver is important but that you don't want that to be your only thing because what you want to do is not have those problems in the first place so having somebody who's been there and done that and can point out and say hey you know by the way you know you're about to step into a huge hole over there that you can't see um you might want to just look at that before you before you go ahead and do that and i think that um a mentor is very useful at that and it doesn't necessarily mean need to be a finance mentor for something like that you know if you find a board member you can be sort of take you under their wing and they can help sort of point on sort of general business um ideas i think that's just as useful as having a, a financial mentor as a, as a finance person
0: yeah and it's really neat that you have that group and that support system around you what if somebody doesn't have that and they're looking for a mentor how do you find a mentor do you just go up to somebody and say hey will you be my mentor or is it a little bit more informal than that how do you do that?
1: <laughs> it's interesting. Well, I mean, for me, it was a culmination, was, you know, back to starting in at a company like KPMG. So KPMG had a fairly structured mentor mentorship program. And, you know, one thing I found as going through that process, some of the mentors that I had there, I mean, I don't talk to the guys as much now, so I'm getting a little older, but I regularly called them after I I left KPMG and was in industry working to to have them as advisors when I just when I ran into different you know question marks, you know, what should I do? How should I handle it? And it wasn't, these weren't technical accounting issues. These were more, you know, business culture issues. These were more operational type things. How do I get people to, you know, do things the way I wanted, I think they should be done, or how do I communicate? How do I deal with these certain problems? That was extremely helpful. You know, I was also lucky in my in my first role to be working with the CFO who left a year after I joined and, and sort of threw me to the wolves, but he, he remained a very, again, a very key contact to have someone to just, just run ideas by. And you know, back to what I'm saying, you know, point out those holes that you're about to step in before, hopefully before you step in them.
0: That's great advice to avoid those holes, to, you know, avoid failure, you know, in a CFO position, what does it take to be a good CFO?
1: Certainly you need to listen. and and listen well both to the various different stakeholders and not just stay married to one particular perspective because a lot of people you'll you'll get a lot of different points of view on different subjects and you know try to take that in and and assess that information and and, you know in part use your financial skills to sort of analyze the you you may hear one thing from a shareholder and something different from management and something different from a customer or something and you got to take all that together and say okay you know what, what is the right approach and whose way would, would go the fastest? It's not just about the numbers sometimes. It's about sort of back to what I said. It's about how does it affect the organization? How does it affect your overall strategy going forward? You know, a short-term decision to, to drive a quarterly number or result in a certain way can cost you big time in the future if you haven't sort of thought through you know, a bit of a chess match to a certain extent is, you know, what, what is your next move going to be, you know, two or three quarters down the road from now if you do this now?
0: That's great. So you've had a, a lot of success throughout your career. How do you measure success in your life? Do you measure it by title or or financial success, or you know, when you look at your life, what really matters most to you?
1: You know, I think as as you go through your life, you have different measures, but when it really comes down to it, you measure it off in my sense against um, family and and no regrets, because it's the one thing about. Uh, being in finance and most people that come into finance are really of the same sort of um, you know driven by the same things there's always work to do there's always um, more things you can do there's always things to happen you're working with a whole bunch of other type a's the lawyers work ridiculous hours the accountants you know other, other people in the organization you could spend your entire life working and miss out on some of those big family moments and once you're you know when you go back and look and your kids are grown up and you go back and say well I wasn't there for whatever, whether it was something at school, whether it was something there. And so having that family life balance, I think is so key. Not just, you don't always notice it even at the time, although I don't think you can be successful unless you have a good solid family supporting you you know especially when you're working internationally and you're working all hours of the day and night to talk to other people so I guess having that balance all the way through as you go is so key and and um, I've seen it with a lot of different people in my you know sort of my peer group and people that even people that I've worked with remember one controller I told her I'm gonna come and lay down across the entrance of the parking lot on Saturday so you can't come in and work uh, (laughs) you go and do something else with your life and 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 she was just so dedicated to the job which. was nice and great but i also know that there's more to it than than just working all the time and so having that work-life balance and and you need to drive it yourself because because if you don't the work will consume you it's always there and um, you need to make that a priority
0: yeah, and that's so true. And that's something that I struggle with as well, Bill. You know, when I look at my life, when I look at my career, especially being an entrepreneur, it it's a it's a grind, you know, it's a lot of work, it's a lot of hours. And I think early on in my career, you know, I had this misconception where I told myself, hey, you know, kids are young right now, work a lot of hours, they're not going to really miss you anyways because they don't know differently. But then as you see research coming out and you know as you get older and your kids get older you think back on those days and it's like wow you know those days were actually really important in not only the the child's development but in the bond that you form with your family and it's it's such a a balancing act you know especially in a role that's so demanding like finance where you know it, it's a lot of hours typically and the the professional demands are are great. And it's like, how do you, how do you balance that out? You know, how do you balance work and, you know, growing professionally while also, you know, having strong relationships, whether that's with your family or with others and taking care of yourself in the process and not letting all that stuff fall apart.
1: I couldn't agree more.
0: It's, it's hard. <laughs> anybody, anybody who tells you it's easy, I,
1: I don't believe them. It's, it's uh but you know, I feel like my greatest accomplishment as sitting here now is that when I look back, I don't have regrets that I didn't do something. I didn't, you know, I coached my son's baseball team. I I went to horse shows with my daughter. I did these things. And and I, I'm glad that I did. You know, even though in the background I remember, you know, sitting in JFK Airport doing baseball lineups at you know, flight was delayed at two o'clock in the morning because by the time I landed, I had time to have a shower and go straight and coach my my son in a baseball game or bringing my computer to horse shows and, and crunching away at stuff well in between things when my daughter's doing things, but at least you're there and you're and you're you're participating in their life and and when you look back,
0: they appreciate it and they know you were there and they know that you were doing these things. Yeah. And those are the moments that truly matter.
1: Absolutely.
0: Uh, I mean what do you want to be known for when people, you know, talk about Bill Adams. What do you want them to say? What what's your legacy you're trying to create here, and and what do you want your life to be all about when it's all said and done? That's a heady question. I hadn't
1: given much given much thought to. I mean, I think from my perspective, I want to be known as
0: as someone
1: that was fair, that had you know high integrity, and helped to build both companies, but also people within the companies to, to grow, to sort of take on things. So back to sort of the, the relay race analogy of bringing along that next group of people who can, can take over and, and, and keep, uh, keep driving things ahead. And then, you know, if I can, um, you know, help develop some drugs that save lives of 28 year old sisters of, of the bride that you can meet, I mean, those things along the way are just fabulous, but just, you know, creating an environment where, where other people can sort of carry on when you're, when you're, when you're done doing it, I think is, is absolutely critical.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it seems like you're out there making a big impact on a lot of people's lives and and that's great to hear. And I really appreciate the conversation that we had today on this episode. I'm sure the listeners picked up a lot of valuable things that you said and things that they could take back and implement in their own lives and in their own businesses. So really appreciate your perspective that you shared.
1: All right. Well, thanks, Steve. I enjoyed uh, enjoyed being part of it.
0: Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at cultivar.com. I would love to connect all the best.